0: I'm turning my Bible to Psalm 119, verse 161. It's our next to last section of Psalm 119. We should uh, finish it on uh, the second Sunday of January in the afternoon. This is the shin or sin section of the psalm, if your Bible has headings for each of these sections, you have seen the English rendering of each of Hebrew letters, and uh, uh, we should find the same here on this one. This is one you may have in your Bible that has the words shin or sin next to, to it. I think the ESV has both, sin and shin. Um, next to it's one one Hebrew letter that uh, eventually developed two different sounds uh, and when the the, uh, Hebrew uh, was um, normalized or um, vocalized by putting points they made distinction between these two letters by putting a a dot Um, how many of you have in the Bible in front of you the actual Hebrew character all right uh, the closest, if you don't have it, the closest I can describe to you is, it, it only works if you are like college football. It looks like the Wisconsin W on their helmets in the college football. That's how the letter uh, looks like. Some of you say, oh, some of you is like, I have no idea what you're talking about. But it's like a, 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 a trident or a um, W, a stylized W, and can either be the shh sound or the s sound, You remember the development when the tribes of Israel split, and some of the tribes stayed on one side of the river, some started to stay on the other side of the river, and they developed a code word to figure out where you're from. And if you're for a certain part, you say shibboleth, and if you're for another part, you say sibboleth, and you could figure out if you're trying to spy on one tribe or another. So that's the kind of development of the phoneme or the sound of this letter. And in Seminari's thought, to keep them straight, is that. uh, if you're leaning to the left, if the dot's on the left, then it's sin. But if it's on the right, then it's shin. So that's how I, I, I remembered. And it's interesting that in this particular section, these are verses, um, if, if the pointing is correct, then the author goes back and forth between sin and shin. Like the first two verses is one, then the next, next verse is another one, then the, the next two verses is another one, and, and so on. So he uses it to add stylistic stylistic design to the psalm, to the the section. And as we read it in a moment, I want you to uh, see three things. Uh, Listen for it. Uh, In verses uh, 161 to 163, the psalmist is talking about his heart. In verses 164 to 166, he's going to tell us about his life. And then in verses one sixty eight to one sixty seven to one sixty eight, he's going to talk about his motivation for living the life that he, he does. And as we listen to it, as we study what the psalmist says concerning himself, we can learn about the anatomy of the soul and then the treasury of believing life of, of a believing life. So listen for these three things as we read Psalm one sixty one. This is the word of our Lord. Or Psalm one hundred nineteen, verse one sixty one. Princes persecute me without a cause, but my heart stands in awe of your word. I rejoice at your word as one who finds great treasure. I hate and abhor lying, but I love your law. Seven times a day I praise you because of your righteous judgments. Great peace have those who love your law, and nothing causes them to stumble. Lord, I love I hope for your salvation, and I do your commandments. My soul keeps your testimonies, and I love them exceedingly. I keep your precepts and your testimonies, for all my ways are before you. This is the word of our Lord. Let us pray together. Father, we do pray that in the time we have this afternoon, you'd speak to us. We pray that uh, this portion of your word would richly dwell in our hearts. We're asking Jesus' name. Amen. Since August 2007, I have pro- preached or taught from the book of Psalms 129 times. It's one my, f- my favorite book of the Bible. Some of you may remember that when I became the full-time pastor here back in 2007, I taught on the Psalms for 33 Wednesdays in a row. So some of you may remember that. Most of you probably don't uh, remember that. And one of the reasons I'm so appreciative of the Psalms is because of the picture they paint of the soul and the life of the believer. Concerning the Psalms, uh, John Calvin says, in the Psalms, we have the anatomy of all parts of the soul. We can understand ourselves as we look at at the Psalms. When we look at the Psalms, we see the heart of the psalmist revealed, and we see all the different aspects of the believing heart And that tells us much about what a Christian's heart looks like. The Psalms give us a vocabulary to speak to the Lord. It it shows us how we can, what's appropriate in speaking to the Lord. It's it's, it's It's a book filled with emotions. And they help us, the Psalms help us express those emotions to our God. We can see... The, the effect in the psalms. We can see the effect of the heart in the way that people speak and how they live and the priorities that we make. But the psalms reveal to us something of the believing heart. Uh, we, uh, we should try to put ourselves in, a st- in the place of the psalmist as we read the psalms. And the psalms are not only an anatomy of all parts of the soul, but the psalms are also the sum of the believing life. You're gonna find all aspects of the believing life in the book of Psalms. We look at the psalmist and learn much about what the life of faith should look like. So let's see if we can see these three things in this in this section, these eight verses. Uh, the heart of the uh, psalm of the believer, the life of the believer, and the motivation of the believer. So let's start with the heart in verses 161 through 164, And these, by the way, I couldn't figure out a pattern in, in why they ought, there must be something there, but why there's a going back and forth between shin and sin. Scott, that could be your PhD dissertation there. Uh, these verses transcend um, here. But I think we can clearly see the heart of the psalmist in verses 161 to 164. We learn at least three things about the heart of the psalmist as we read these three verses. We learn, he, he teaches us that Christian, the Christian heart is in awe of God's word. Look at the second half of verse 161. He says, but my heart stands in awe of your Word. He is in awe of God's word because it reveals God himself, all the details of whom God is. He's in awe of God's word because in his word he finds the mercy and the grace of God. That is the gospel of Jesus Christ and that caused him to be in awe of his word. He is in awe of God's word because it reveals the right way to live life. And that's not, usually that's not the one that we're super excited about. We're not, oh, I'm so glad that God is telling me how to live. But the psalmist says that he's in awe of God's Word because it reveals to him how God wants him to live. And that's something we need to learn from this psalmist. Our hearts need to be in awe, excited about learning from the Lord, from His Word, how we are to live our lives. Uh, I don't think we realize this because we are Western people. The time the Bible is written, especially the first five books of the Bible, the the context of, of a world in which people did not, want, did not know what their gods wanted. They worshipped by Braille, as it were. They're trying to guess what is it that would please God. So they, they would try this thing, and, and it in their minds would work for a while, and then stop work, so they will try these other things, always hoping that they could guess what is it that pleases their God. And yet our God, in His mercy, tells us exactly what is it that He wants us to do how He wants to be worshipped, how we are to live, live and believe. And that's a great mercy. And the psalmist is in awe of God because of that. Second thing that he teaches about the heart, he teaches us that the Christian heart delights in the Word of God as a great treasure. In verse 162, he says, I rejoice at your word as one who finds great treasure. This delight shows itself in consuming the Word of God. Uh, We, Louis brings a pie to church, okay? And we look at it. And we are delighted that she brought a pie. But we are not delighted, we are not delighting in it till we do what? Till we eat it. To just chow that baby down as fist as you can, like Scott gets half of it onto his plate and he's, he's delighting. And Jim grabs the plate from Scott and attracts him to choir with the pie. That's how it works. So we're not delighting in the pie till we actually are smelling it and tasting it and eating it. And we're not delighting in God's Word till we're actually consuming the Word of God itself. We can't really delight in what we don't know. And this guy, his heart delights in the word of God. And that teaches us that the Christian needs to delight in that word as well by consuming it, by by enjoying it, by eating it up, as it were. And he also teaches that the Christian heart loves the law of God. In 163, he says, but I love your law. The word law in this psalm often stands for all of God's word. But it's important that he uses it here when speaking of love. Our nature tends to dislike laws and commands. Now, okay, I'll do it because God says so, so I need to do it. But that's not the attitude of the heart. These things are good for us, and we're to delight in them. We're to appreciate them. John, in First John 5, 3 says, For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. And the way that the psalmist portrays the heart of the Christian here, he says that love for God's word is a tool in the fight against sin. Look at the first half of verse 163. I hate and abhor lying, but I love your law. The psalmist is so into the word of God that he has gotten to the point where he loves the word more than the sin that he could have been loving. Here, portrayed as falsehood, as lying. Now, this sin of falsehood is defeated with a superior love in the heart of the psalmist, and that love is a love for the Word of God. Loving the Word of God, studying the Word of God, coming to delight and admire what God teaches in His Word is one of the things that the Holy Spirit will use to help us fight sin in our life. So, remember that that love for the Word of God is a tool that God uses in our fight for sin. So he tells us something about the heart, but he also tells us some, something about life in verses 164 through 166. And he tells us that the Christian life is a life of praise. In 164, he says, Seven times I praise you. Now, number seven in biblical literature is a number of completion. So the psalmist is saying that he praises the Lord all the time. He's not giving us a specific time or well, seven times a day, I must utter a say, but he's saying that he praises the Lord all the time. The psalmist is telling us that the life of a Christian is a life of praise. And I think we have difficulty with that, because we think of praise as this happy, slappy, clappy thing that we do, you know, in, in, with excitement and happiness. And, but praise happens in every every occasion. You don't have to have this excitement. You don't have to have this super happy attitude in order to be able to praise the Lord, to thank the Lord, to bless the Lord, to declare who He is in our lives. The psalmist praises God in Psalm 88. And if Psalm 88 doesn't pop into your head, go home and take a look at it and you're going to see there, that's not the most joyful psalm. As a matter of fact, it's the only psalm in the whole Psalter in which there's no resolution. Every other psalm, there might be a struggle, but eventually the psalmist gets out of it by the grace of God, and he's rejoicing at the end. But Psalm 88, he starts in the pit of the despair, and Psalm 88 ends with him a little deeper in the pit of despair, and through it, his praising the Lord declaring that the Lord is great. But that's the life of the Christians, a life of praise. There's also a life of peace. Look at, one, look at 165. Great peace have those who love your law. Now, this is not the absence of problems. It would be to disregard the actual context of the psalm. If you look at verse 161, he started this section by saying that the princes are after him. People of great import are after him. He's in trouble. He's being persecuted again. He is... Uh, being attacked by the enemies of God, and yet he says he is at peace. So he's not saying, I met Jesus and everything has been perfect ever since. He's not saying, I embraced the gospel and my life has been super easy. That's not what he is saying at all here. The peace that he's talking about is that great peace with passes, which passes understanding, which even the betrayed and the bereaved can have, which even the lonely can have, which even the, betr- the broken can have. It's a peace of knowing who Christ is, and that there is peace between the Christian and God himself. Those who trust in the Lord may have a peace that passes understanding, even when their understanding cannot supply them from their circumstances with a reason to have peace, because God in his grace, in his grace supplies them with that peace. He also teaches us that the life of a Christian is a life of preservation. There will be five things about this life. So we saw already a life of peace, we saw a life of praise, sorry, the life of preservation, and then you're going to see that I ran out of peace. The other two are hope and obedience. I couldn't figure out P words to go with that. But the life of a Christian is a life of preservation. Look at 165, the second half. It says, And nothing causes them to stumble. The Lord preserves the Christian. It's not that there aren't rocky roads. It's not that there aren't difficult paths where we can lose our footing. <clears throat> but it is that the Lord prevents us from falling and staying down. Uh, one of my favorite um, doxology in the Bible is Jude 24 and 25, where there it says, Now to him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you with great joy before his presence. So here we have God who is able to keep us from falling to, and stay down and stay away from the Lord. That's the life of Christians, the life of preservation. But it's also a life of hope. Ran out of peace again. What would be a P word for hope? Anna? I just said Pope. Pope. <laughs> yes. As Enoch be sleeping well through the night there, Hannah. <laughs> just checking. Um, look at verse uh, 166. Lord, I hope for your salvation. So the life of a Christian is a life of hope No one can take away our hope because our life is hidden with Christ in God. No one can fully extinguish our hope. More often than not, the way out of hopelessness for a Christian is the realization that our only hope in life and death is the Lord Jesus Christ who never changes. And no one can take that hope from us. So the life of a Christian is a life of hope. And the life of Christians is a life of obedience. In verse 166, the second half says, I do your commandments. The Christian is not just a hearer of God's word, but a doer. The Christian doesn't just study God's word. He or she lives it out. When our Lord ended his Sermon on the Mount, he concluded by comparing the hearer of the word to two builders. Remember that story? And he says the wise builder is the one who hears the word, and then, and then what? And then he does the word. And it's like the guy that builds the house on a rock. We're called to be doers of the word. So the life of the Christian is a life of obedience. And lastly, you have the psalmist's motivation, verses 167 and 168. Just two, two motivations, two motives he gives for the life that he seeks and he lives. In verse 167, his love for God and love for His Word. He says, My soul keeps your testimonies. I love them exceedingly. One of the most important things that we do in the Christian life is make sure that we are doing what we are called to do for the right reason, with the right motivation. And the psalmist says, Lord, one of the reasons I do what You command is because I love You and I love what You command we may not want to do what God calls us to do. I understand that. There is a place for obedience that says, Lord, I really don't want to do this, but I'm going to do it because I love you and you are the one commanding me to do. That's the right reason to do something. When we feel like the only reason, we think that the only reason for us to do something when we feel like doing it, then guess who is the master There. We are, not God. We have to make sure that we're doing things for the right motivation. Love for God, love for his word is one motivation. The second one is the pleasure of God. Look at 168. I keep your precepts and your testimonies for all my ways are before you. Now, just a fictitious hypothetical situation here. Nothing to do with our reality. You have, have you ever been with a young couple when their child is taking her or his first steps? Or they say their, perhaps their first words. You won't see much prouder beings on this earth than those young parents watching that little child take his or her first steps. There's just sheer delight in watching a child take steps that aren't, to be honest, that great. <laughs> And if that child walks that way for the rest of his or her life, they probably be in the hospital every third day if that's how they always walked. Those first steps aren't that good, but those parents and maybe those grandparents, fictitious people, are overjoyed and their eyes are fixed on the, that little child when they, he takes his first step. Just can't get enough. Same with the first words, just can't get enough until they don't stop talking for three or four years and then you can get enough. But for those first ones, you just can't take your eyes off of them. And that's what the psalmist is saying here. The psalmist is saying, Lord, I want you to take pleasure in the way I live. And I know that when I do what you tell me to do in your word, your eyes are on me like a parent or a grandparent watching a child take his or her first steps. He delights in seeing me, even in a wobbly way, obey your word. So the motivation, one of the motivations for the psalmist for doing what God calls him to do is that God's eyes are upon him. God's eyes delighting upon his obedience of his words. In other words, he says, I am motivated to live the Christian life because of the pleasure of God in me. When I do. The psalmist tells us much about his heart and his life and his motives. And by telling us those things, he tells us much about the Christian's heart and the Christian's life and the Christian's motives. So by his grace, may we, his followers, learn much and live much out of this great psalm. Our heart, our own life in obedience and the motivation for following the Lord. Let us pray together. Father, thank you for your word. We thank you that you're rich in it, that you give us abundant understanding. Help us to live according to it. For asking in Jesus' name. Amen.